And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. He serves as cultural apologist, philosopher, and founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. He's also the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Uh, Joe, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me, Dan. I don't think we've ever talked before. I first became acquainted with you, I think, through our friend P. Andrew Sandlin, and then I found out about this Ezra Institute, ordered a couple of books, and we shared from one book with our listeners on the air on the Covenant Home, little excerpts from this book called For Mission, The Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology. And uh, the other day you wrote an article, The Cult of the Expert, so I'm hoping we can talk about that. But as a segue into that, Joe, could you tell us just a little bit about the Ezra Institute? My hunch is that many people have not heard of it. Sure. Well, we like to think we're North America's best-kept secret, <laughs> uh, tucked away here on the uh, Niagara Escarpment in um, Ontario, in, here in Canada, So we're about uh, 45 minutes from Toronto and about 30 minutes from the U.S. border near Niagara Falls in in wine country here. Um, The Ezra Institute is a Christian think tank worldview training organization. And our focus is seeking to equip God's people, Christian people, to think Christianly. uh, And in particular, to uh, develop a robust um, biblical world and life view, uh, to begin to be able to engage effectively with the questions and cultural challenges of our time, so cultural apologetics, and then a reformational Christian philosophy. How do we develop a coherent uh, Christian philosophical vision? Our primary purpose really is the equipping of uh, both uh, leaders in the church, but also in the professions, in the vocations, law, politics, medicine, business, the arts, to really develop, um, and of course university students, to really develop a coherent biblical world and life view and learn to apply it into their different spheres. And so that is involves us in writing, um, publishing, uh, and online resources, but also uh, immersive residential training, for short-term residential training at our center here in, in Ontario. Our program is usually a week or, or two weeks of residence, and uh, there are often other components to each program that can be done remotely. But uh, that's what we're about, and of course, periodically we are engaging the skeptic as well in discussion and debate. Yes, well, it's uh, it's fascinating, and I, I'm really excited about your setup there. You told us before we opened the mics, you're on a farm. Yes, so, um, yeah, by the grace of God, actually, when the Institute, um, the Institute was actually established in 2009, but for, for a number of years, we were just working out of sort of broom cupboards in the church, um, uh, you know, I had a, a, just a small, very small staff um, uh, because we, as you mentioned, you know, I planted a church in Toronto. So we were just working out the, the back of small rooms in a church. But about three years ago, God brought to us uh, a very substantial donation to acquire our own study center, uh, modeled somewhat on Francis Schaeffer's Brie in Switzerland. And um, so we 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 actually acquired a, a 25 acre farm property on the Niagara Escarpment, and um, it's a home to some of our staff. And uh, there's a 
permacultural organic orchard project uh, that we're in the middle of right now. And um, it's also where we host people in our in our home here during uh, during our programs. Oh, that's beautiful. It's it's a great encouragement to see something like this take off and run by Christian people. This this is just wonderful. Um, and one more tidbit: uh, you guys put on something called the Runner Academy, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you're you're especially interested in ministering to young people. That's right. So the the the, the primary, so our sort of flagship program our premium program is called the h evan runner international academy for cultural leadership that's a bit of a mouthful so it's shortened to the runner academy (laughs) named after the american philosopher uh, the late uh, h evan runner uh, who was instrumental in advancing reformational philosophy uh, that sort of came across from the netherlands really in north america including uh, here in ontario and um, it's a two-week immersive sort of training program uh, at the center here where people between 19 and 39 come from both university and the professions for an intensive time of reflection, teaching and discussion and thrown into the mix there is is time working, a little bit of time working on the farm and uh, we have a number of international fellows who are associated with the EICC and they fly in from Europe and the UK and the United States to join me for the the teaching component of that program and then we also have uh, worldview camps here for the high school age so for, from 14 through 18 and to, that that's an alternative here to the sort of more traditional canoeing and climbing camp they come here it's a lot of fun too but uh, there's a lot of teaching and the students absolutely love it we find they want to come back frequently two three years in a row well, that's so encouraging to hear about. Uh, we could talk about this more, but I do want to get to our article now that you wrote. This is wonderful. Um, this article, the title is The Cult of the Expert, and I love that title. Um, what did you have in mind when you wrote this article? So I was reflecting on the uh, way in which Western culture has moved, especially in the last 60 or 70 years, um, and of course, accelerated in the last decade or two, whereby what was uh, a broadly Christianized culture uh, that was concerned with the lordship of Jesus Christ and the application of the, the Christian faith in, in people's lives. Uh, we've moved away from that. And uh, as we have, especially with the uh, the Christian emphasis on everybody's participation in civic responsibility and uh, the rule of law and the value of truly democratic institutions where we've got commons and uh, lords in the UK or a Senate and a Congress in the United States and the two houses as well in, in Canada. We've moved much more now to a situation where our culture looks to a very small select number of experts, public intellectuals, and their partners in crime, if you will, an intelligentsia to guide and shape society. In some respects, the way I illustrate it in the article is where once upon a time people looked to first to God and then to the uh, influence of the life of the church for guidance in life, uh, moral guidance, uh, ethical guidance, um, guidance for thinking about the future, hope, 
uh, if you will, a, a Christian eschatology, the a hope of the kingdom of God. Those things have been radically secularized. And essentially now we have a, a new priesthood and it's no longer the pastors and the clergy. Uh, we've got these new bishops, new priesthood, new guides of society uh, who believe themselves to be in many respects a kind of anointed elite who are there to guide and shepherd and uh, shape uh, everybody's lives. Um, and they know what's good for us and they will implement that in society. And so uh, I called it the the cult uh, because it's a kind of almost a statist religion, really, the cult now of the expert it's no longer the worship of Christ and the living God and uh, getting our answers through the word of God and through the life of the church. We're looking to a secular priesthood to guide and shepherd society. In your article, you give a couple of examples of people and what they believed. You mentioned uh, George Bernard Shaw and also Sartre. Uh, can you share those examples? Sure. So, um, yeah, I give a couple of examples, a, a slightly older one and then a slightly more contemporary one. And of course, there are many that could be pointed to in the in, in the current moment as well. But yes, George Bernard Shaw uh, was a very well-known playwright, as you probably know, Irish playwright in the the early part of the 20th century. Very well-known British intellectual, um, a Fabian socialist. And just a darling of the uh, of the intellectual class and remains so and yet i point out that uh, he absolutely despised ordinary working class people and he was very open about it uh he just had no time for it it's so often the case that those people who preach about the importance of the masses and uh the um the revolution as it were that they often despise the people they claim to be championing hmm. and um i point out one particular notorious example of how he supported dictatorships in the 20th century first of all he was uh, enamored with hitler and uh, the nazis and it was only with the emergence of their radical anti-semitism that it became difficult for sure to continue any kind of public support for the nazis uh, but after that, he expressed his um, support for the Soviet uh, dictatorship. And so, you know, in, in George Bernard Shaw there, this, this revered intellectual and playwright, um, I just pointed to the, the total lack of wisdom and judgment in how he viewed the political circumstances of his own era. And then I give another example of Jean-Paul Sartre, of course, the well-known French existentialist in the middle of the 20th century, and uh, his ethical life of seducing his own students with the help of his lover, uh, his addictions, problems to alcohol and um, barbiturates and so on, his inability to maintain, um, you know, cordial, uh, worthwhile relationships with intellectual male peers. He just didn't seem to be able to do it. And despite being rabidly anti-American, he supported both the Soviet Union and Mao's China publicly well into the 1950s. And, and anybody who's read Sartre knows that he, uh, you know, talked about uh, a Western Christian world and life view as being institutionalized violence. And he felt that you needed a kind of intellectual activism and necessary violence to overthrow uh, the Western, by which he meant the Christian order. So I just gave those two illustrations in, in opening the article to help position in people's minds what I mean. 
these sort of uh, figures, uh, public figures, intellectual figures, who um, whose ideas gain currency with a broader intelligentsia in in the press, uh, in the law, in politics, um, who then disseminate their ideas. But very often, these people were totally lacking in wisdom and judgment. Mm. Another section you deal with intellect and wisdom, and um, intellect is nice to have. We certainly want to be able to have a sharp brain, but there's something about Christian wisdom that is extremely important. Can you tell us the difference between the two and why wisdom is so very necessary? Yeah. Well, what I try and do is just draw out for the reader a distinction between uh, intellect, intelligence, and and wisdom, and it's certainly one that's implied uh, in Scripture. Intellect is tends to be viewed, and I think it's it's a valuable sort of way of thinking about it. Intellect is is the ability to grasp complex ideas. So when somebody has a sharp mind, they they have a capacity to grasp things. Intelligence uh, is a is a broader concept than even intellect. It's it's the ability not just to grasp those challenging ideas, but actually to, to think about some of their implications for one's thought, the area of life that you're thinking about, looking at. Uh, wisdom, though, goes beyond both of those. And, um, of course, wisdom is what's spoken of um, in Scripture. And it actually brings together our intellect, our intelligence, our experience in life, and sound judgment pulls those things together so that we actually have a, a coherent understanding of reality. So we've all come across the sort of, um, uh, at some point in our lives, probably the sort of muddled, absent-minded professor who can do quantum mechanics but can't find his way home and, and doesn't <laughs> you know how to d- d- pull up his pants properly. Um, so, and has bizarre ideas on all kinds of different themes, but is brilliant at mathematics. Well, so there I think you've got an example of intellect and even intelligence uh, to some degree if they're doing applied math. Um, but we can see there an illustration of how general wisdom, understanding, and the application of, of abstract knowledge and experience and sound judgment coming together um, in in wisdom, and so I point to the biblical admonition to get understanding. Yes, uh, with all you're getting, get understanding because it's qualitatively different. And this is why you know we can go to elderly, older, more mature uh, Christian people and find that they may have been far less educated in adverted commas than us, and yet they are a treasure trove of wisdom. An understanding because they've they over a, a lifetime of experience they've brought these different elements together that gives them a coherent understanding and sound judgment and uh, you know we're, we're in an age when there's been so much emphasis on a particular type of education in our culture um, uh, for you know preparing yourself to for a particular career to make as much money as possible uh, whereas uh, wisdom and judgment seems to have gone the way of the dodo in in the process and a lot of young people confuse their intellectual ability uh with wisdom um and i link this to the whole cult of the expert because we find that uh experts intellectuals tend to make because they have a particular giftedness in one area maybe it's in mathematics or in medicine or in epidemiology or whatever it might be they've got a gift in one area 
they extrapolate that then to the assumption that they are gifted to look at everything and therefore have wisdom and sound judgment and see themselves as a kind of sort of concentration point, if you will, of knowledge and understanding, giving them the right to pronounce over all kind of issues for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Today we're talking with Dr. Joe Boot. He heads up the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and we've shared one of his books on the air here at Redeemer Broadcasting with our listeners by reading some excerpts from his book. Uh, he's written this article, The Cult of the Expert, and um, one part of the article you title The Difference Between a Christian and a Secular Intellectual. Can you uh, kind of describe some of the highlights there? Yeah, so what I try and do there is uh, tease out the fact that um, there is a difference in the in the foundation of thought for the uh, the Christian thinker and the non-Christian thinker, and 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 what that entails. Um, you know, very often we we get the impression as we listen to commentators in our society that there is this sort of neutral, uh, autonomous field of knowledge. It's scientific knowledge. It's experiential knowledge, and it's there's this body of truth. And uh, the intellectual is committed to it. They're committed to reason. They're committed to to science and so on. And then over the other side, you've got these sort of religious people um, who are sort of occupy this bit slightly bizarre niche. It's a little bit embarrassing, um, but we humor them. And um, this is, of course, a misnomer. And what I'm pointing out in the article is that actually the presumption of autonomous area of knowledge, the presumption of autonomy in thought that uh, uh, that that reasoning is a law unto itself is already a religious posture towards knowledge. Right. It's already to adopt a particular world and life view. And the Christian has to reject that. We reject the idea that our thought is self-normed, uh, that, that, that we are rationally autonomous, that we are utterly independent. We, we affirm that we're creatures of God, uh, that God has established creational order and structure and laws and norms for creation, and that human thinking is normed as well. And uh, that norming um, provides us a structure for, for, for Christian thought as we look at both scripture and creation and also provides an accountability in our thinking to the real world. Uh, in other words, um, the, the, the scriptures and creation tie the thinking of Christians to the real world and not simply the abstract thought experiments of um, secular intellectuals. And I think I give the examples of... Um, Plato and Aristotle and Marx, as they sort of drafted their um, political utopias, how these were really abstract thought experiments in many respects. They're not tied to the real world. I think I mentioned as well the contemporary deconstructionists that we're, many of your listeners will be familiar with in the form of political correctness and what we call feminism and queer theory and all of these ideas that have invaded our culture. Um, they are thought experiments. They're not tied to the real world of creation. Uh, they're unaccountable to it. And it doesn't seem to matter how destructive they are. Uh, they're judged just in terms of how progressive they sound or how novel they are, or how artistic they look or how revolutionary they are. And the Christian can't participate in that. And so I draw the distinction is for us in the Bible, 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom. And literally, that means the principal part, the principal part of knowledge uh, to to cut uh, in the right direction in our thinking um, is the honor and reverence for God and for his creator. And that means honor and reverence for his creation and the laws and norms that he has established. That's that's the very beginning of wisdom. So whilst it's true that the um, the non-Christian thinker in great, typically in gratitude, in gratitude, stumbles over all kinds of truths within uh, creation, they will not infrequently fail to adequately apply what they've discovered uh, with wisdom and understanding. Um, the degree to which they're influenced by the Christian worldview will determine how much wisdom, judgment and understanding they uh, they use in, in applying what they've learned. In other words, you can stumble over laws and norms within creation as a scientist, as a philosopher, um, uh, in whatever field. But then knowing how to um, understand it, to how to apply it, how to utilize it, uh, how it um, how it's relevant for human life and society. Uh, frequently, we see these intellectuals misapplying these things and causing great havoc in the process because their foundation is wrong. So you can make your guttering look fine on your house. You can make the roof look OK. But if the foundation's wrong, eventually cracks are going to show up. Your house is unstable. And I argue that there's a fundamental instability uh, under the non-Christian thinker, uh, an intellectual, because they do not have an adequate foundation. Yes, uh, that's very helpful. In your article, you mentioned that they're like a priestly class, um, Mm -hmm. he says, uh, along with their supporters in the broader intelligentsia, believe that culture, especially law, education, economic, and public policy, must be directed by them as the experts. And I think you've hit the nail on the head here. Yes, I'm trying to uh, sort of highlight the fact that um, the more de-Christianized we've become as a culture, actually, the more disengaged many people have become with a broader participation and responsibility in civic life. And um, we've tended to surrender more and more. I mean, if you go back to the contractarian theories of society with Rousseau, and then, of course, later with John Rawls, the American philosopher, um, we've tended to assign more and more responsibility back to the state and the state's experts Mm. Um, in terms of the uh, leading society. So for Rousseau, you, in a certain sense, by agreeing to this contract, you essentially surrender your freedom um, to be led and governed by the general will. And this is very much the way uh, we think in Canada. It's the way we think in Europe. It's increasingly the way we even hear people thinking in the United States um, that, uh, well, you know, there's, there's this social contract and uh, there's a general will of the people. And then we have these experts, whether they're in the courts or in politics or wherever, who are going to interpret and tell us what the general will is. And um, that's what freedom is. That's the uh, that's our contemporary idea of freedom. And uh, we are then put in a position where we're going to be coerced to be free <laughs> by accepting the will of an increasingly shrinking 
group of oligarchs, experts, who believe they have the right to govern society. And Dan, when you think about it, you look at declining levels of participation in politics, even in voting. You see how increasingly disengaged people are in much of the Western world. Uh, We've delegated so much of this. We've delegated so much. We've delegated education in Canada and in Europe. We've delegated medicine. We've delegated most of the framing of public policy. So when you begin to look at a culture that's delegated to the state and its experts multiple different areas of life, even uh, deciding on what the family is and how the family is going to be defined and how the family is to be structured and led and how the courts have done that in the West, um, you start to see a greatly shrinking area of freedom and the voice of ordinary people um, who have a wealth of experience in every aspect of life. And let's remember that. I mean, as, as a Christian intellectual myself, uh, I have, have a, a relatively narrow field of experience. And I am dependent upon numerous other people, like my farm manager, to be able to understand and function adequately in various areas of my life because there are numerous other people who have incredible experience, all kinds of practical wisdom in numerous areas of life that I need. And the fact that I happen to be something of an expert in inverted commas in Christian apologetics um, does not mean that I'm an expert in farming or an expert in financial management or, or, or something like that. So this, this delegation of all of these different areas of life means that a, sm- a smaller and smaller group of people are directing society, and we're less and less engaged as people generally. Well, we could continue this for hours. I, I love this discussion. We're unfortunately out of time. Our guest today is Dr. Joe Boot. He heads up the Ezra Institute. And Joe, if someone wants to look you up and possibly attend one of your seminars, please tell us how can they find out more? Well, we'd love to connect with people. Um, they can just visit our website. It's EzraInstitute.ca, Ezra as in the biblical Ezra, EzraInstitute.ca. And uh, they can contact us there. There's all kinds of free resources. There's our, uh, you'll be able to visit our um, resource center, bookshop, and read about our uh, residential programs here. We have lots of Americans uh, coming up. Uh, to visit us and do our programs and um, we would be we'd love to connect with you and uh, you can learn more about all that we're doing here that's beautiful dear listener thank you for joining us today for another edition of a plain answer and this uh, entire episode is up on our website check us out at redeemerbroadcasting.org and may the lord richly bless you today as you serve him